Welcome to Jazz Backstory, episode 19. I'll jumpstart this episode with a quote from Monk Rowe, director of the Phileas Jazz Archive at Hamilton College. Here it is. Think of the multitude of movies, television, radio programs, and commercials you've seen and heard since childhood. Then imagine every recording you've ever heard by bands or individual singers backed up by often nameless groups of musicians. All that music was written, arranged, and performed by groups of talented artists. End quote. One of the perks of creating a podcast is the modest joy of quoting yourself. That was indeed yours truly, introducing our focus on studio musicians in episodes 17 and 18. That spotlight was on the actual performers. Our next two episodes highlight the men and women who generate the melodies, harmonies, and rhythms, the composers and arrangers who jot down the notes. Inspiration for new jazz music can come from an unlimited variety of sources, both momentous, sometimes frivolous. John Coltrane composed Alabama, as a memorial to the victims of the 1963 Birmingham church bombing. Bob Haggart and Roy Baduke of the Bob Crosby Orchestra spontaneously composed the bass and drum duet Big Noise from Winnetka in response to a riotous crowd and their demand for one more song. I can testify that on occasion, new compositions spring forth for no discernible reason at all. Our first interview excerpt comes from a 2020 session with Stefan Harris. The vibraphonist and band leader speaks about the composing process and the sources that may precede it. If we decided that we wanted to commission a new work from you and your group, is there a process that you engage in to get started? So if I were commissioned, I couldn't tell you in advance. I'd have to say, okay, there's some space that I, I'm, I'm ready to create. I have energy, like I know that there's something that's inside of me. And then I'd have to just step back and be patient. Usually it takes me about two weeks before I get the momentum going. Right? So I'll get up in the morning. First thing I'll do is go right to a piano and I'll pluck at a couple of random notes. And if in 15 minutes I don't really get anything that's a tool, I just walk away. I'll do something else. It's not there. And then some mornings you go right to the piano and you play a couple of notes and you say, oh, my goodness, that's it. And then I can spend the next 20 hours trying to find ways to contextualize that beautiful little gem that I found. I didn't create it. I found it. And then I'm just surrounding it (laughs) with interesting things, trying to utilize my knowledge of harmony to an emotional springboard to yeah. the melody. So, do you ever find any little gems when you're driving in your car or taking a walk, <laughs> and then like, oh, I gotta write this down somehow? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it can happen at any moment, and sometimes it can happen in any form too. Sometimes it's a it's a collection of words 
that come to mind that turn into music. So oh. for example, on this, on this concert, uh, this video, we did a piece called Let's Take a Trip to the Sky, which is a piece that I wrote for my wife. Um, I was in uh, on tour on one of our major anniversaries and I, I missed it. And I was thinking about her and I just started to write down some thoughts about, um, I've been married 20 years now. So I started to write down some thoughts about what, what is it that we need to do to, to ensure that our love continues to grow and that it stays strong and just how much I cared about her. And I wrote that down, no instrument around. I'm just in a hotel room thinking about my wife. And then when I got home, I put those words on the piano and just started to look at the emotion of every word and look for a chord that captured the feeling of the word. Wow. So that inspiration didn't come from an instrument or notes at all. It came from my dedication and love for my wife. I think uh, the highest value that, that drives me is empathy. Uh, music is one manifestation of empathy, but I try to live a life with my family and how I maneuver through the world in general, always being led through the values of empathy. So I hope that when people hear my music, that it's not just about me, but you hear the community, you hear how these disparate voices are coming together to create something that is incredibly beautiful that they wouldn't be able to do on their own. And on top of that, I think it's really important that I be of service, right? Just like a chauffeur or a politician or a cook, we all have to provide some service to society. And I think the service that we're supposed to be providing as artists is we're supposed to be amplifying the voices of our community. Many parts of our communities don't have the ability to articulate themselves. We have been studying for many years and are still working on the ability to art articulate emotion in sound. So when someone hears my music, I hope they hear the sound of the communities that we come from, that they hear the beauty that, that lives in our community, the pluses, the minuses, the struggle. I hope that there's some documentation about what's happening in our world right now Stefan Harris impressed me with his, I guess I'll describe it as, noble intentions with his music. When he spoke about little musical gems that launched new compositions, they were not series of notes that he created. Rather, he stated that he found them. As if the phrase was, in the air, just waiting for someone with serious intent, someone who deserved to adopt it and give it an emotional springboard. Ray Conniff was a household name in the 1950s and 60s. His easy listening LPs were played consistently in living rooms across the country, and his use of wordless vocals enabled worldwide popularity. Between 1957 and 1968, Mr. Conniff had 28 albums in the American Top 40. Ray's inspiration was a tad more practical than that of Stefan Harris, and his path from jazz arranger-composer to creator of the iconic and profitable Ray Conniff sound makes for a fascinating tale. That whole period, and up to where you pointed out, where the first album on my own came out, I wrote on, with a different objective in mind. To me, it was fun and it was a big kick if if I wrote uh, a chart as we called them and after the I brought it into the band and they rehearsed it uh, Jack Jenny or 
Georgie All in a Bunny Berrigan band, or Joe Bushkin in a Bunny Berrigan band, or Buddy Rich was in the Bunny Berrigan first band I was in. They said, hey, that was a great arrangement, Ray. I like that thing you did on Little Gate. I wrote for the guys. I wrote for Bunny. I wrote for the guys. I wrote for Bob Crosby and the guys in the band. I wrote for Artie Shaw and the guys in the band. Yeah. I never thought about the people out there that were paying our bills, you know, that were paying our salaries, uh, that went to the dancers, that mm -hmm. listened to us on the air, that bought our records. You know, I didn't care about it. I never gave them a second thought. I went through a period I call the lean years. And that was, uh, gee, I can't pin it down. I know I had been writing for, for the Harry James Band, 46, around 46. I remember the first thing I did for Harry, I still had my soldier suit on. I wrote a thing called oh. Easy, an original. Uh -huh. And uh, Harry and I had a parting of the ways because uh, a few years down the road, I was doing an awful lot of writing for Harry, wrote a lot of originals for him. And... Um, I remember I went into, he had an arranged a song for me to do, I remember the song was Ruby. And he said, by the way, <clears throat> why don't you write a little bit of kind of a bop treatment on this. Um, bop was kind of a new school of music was coming along, and I never did dig bop, so I said, hey, you know, Harry, um, I just don't feel that kind of music. And, you know, maybe it's time you got another boy. And his jaw dropped. He looked at me and said, you couldn't believe what I was saying. And he said, well, okay. So I left the band. And, boy, for two years the phone hardly rang. Mm. And I finally, after sitting waiting for the phone to ring for two years, I got so discouraged. I thought I had a wife and a mother was supporting and uh, three children and and we were living out in Reseda, and I thought, i got to go get a job. I can't go on like this. I took a job. They um, convert, were converting a 10-acre, it was a melon field, uh -huh. into a subdivision out in Reseda. And I went out took a job as a, as a laborer cleaning up the ditches behind the ditch digger. Where he'd make mistakes on the corner, I'd clean the ditches. And I got to thinking, Wow, what happened? Which way did they go? You know, I was making nine uh, in 1948. Artie was paying me $300 a week. You know, which in those days was a lot of money. And here I am out digging ditches. You know, for $60 a week. But it gave me a lot of time to think. So I thought, what if I started writing for the people that paid the bills, the people that listened, the people that, that uh, bought the records, you know? Mm -hmm. And I started thinking more along the lines of commercially, and I thought about, you know, everything in life is rhythm. Our heartbeat is a rhythm. Uh, each day is a rhythm. The sun rises and sets to a rhythm. The ocean uh, tides go in and out to a rhythm. The, uh, the cycles of the, uh, of the seasons are a rhythm. And I thought and rhythm is very important in our life. And I made the rhythm very predominant. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered when I uh, first started thinking about the opposite sex, there was a little girl down the street that I had a terrible crush on. I must be, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, something like that. And she was always singing a song. Was, Ooh, would you like to take a walk? Ooh, do you think it's going to rain? Something's going to come from that is the name of the song. Uh -huh. And to this day, I've heard that song once in a while. People play an old record or a disc jockey. Yeah. It still moves something. I thought, 
if I can catch the songs that people fell in love to the first few times, I've got a wonderful idea. And that's what I did. I picked songs, and I, by arithmetic, I went back the number of years when I, the age group I was trying to hit was 18 to 35 in the market. Uh -huh. So I went back, when were those 18 to 35-year-olds uh, hearing, ooh, would you like to take a walk with a little girl down the street or the yeah. boy, you know? And so by arithmetic, I picked songs from the top 10 of those years. And I did some more research, found out the two most... Uh, two songs that had sold the most records, had the most sheet music, and uh, played most airplay, and it was Begin to Begin and Stardust. That was in 1956. And we put the single out, and it became like a turntable hit. It was played day and night by disc jockeys all over the United States. Nothing like mind-numbing manual labor to make you re-examine your priorities. Mr. Conniff was absolutely correct about initially writing for the guys in the band, for the praise and for that first thrill of hearing the notes you jotted down come to life. Music composition and arranging occur because of a meaningful listening experience, followed by a question, as in, I wonder if I could do that. And so you do. Micah Benny shares a rather odd impetus for his pursuit of jotting down the notes and addresses the ever-present issue of charging a fee for your service. As a piano player, did you ever have to deal with lousy pianos? God, that's why I prefer writing. <laughs> you just answered, you just solved the riddle of my life here. I see. No, but I, I, people say, don't you miss playing? Yeah, I miss playing. I, but I really, I really love writing because the first reason being that, you know, you, you guys can play their own horns, or the drummer plays his drums, the bass player, but then you're stuck with some of these pianos. They're just hideous. And to this day, it's, that's still kind of an occupational hazard for, you, for mm -hmm. piano players, too. But uh, that's why, and the other thing is that sometimes you play and you play a great solo, right? So the next night you go back and nobody even has any idea about how well you might have played the night before. Mm -hmm. you know, I figured it's up in the air someplace. At least with writing, you write something, good, bad, or different, it's there yeah. to remind you if it's yeah. really good and right. unfortunately if it's really bad. So. How do you determine, um, obviously it would change over the years, but what you get paid for your writing? Well, that's funny. Um, with Maynard's band, uh, well, let me just go back a step for a second. With Maynard's band, you didn't get paid. You know, you you cop, you wrote, and you copied, and you didn't really care because you figured you had a band that was playing your mm -hmm. music. Yeah. You got paid if it was recorded, and and then the company pays something like a hundred bucks or something like that. So it wasn't a thrilling amount of money, but the fact is you were getting your music played all the time. So at, at that point in time, that's fine. Um, then you start realizing, you know, uh, as you start working for other bands in other situations that, you know, you got, there's a price, you try, each arranger, from a local, from a musician's point of view, there, I, I believe, now my wife is good because she's really the manager of all this stuff, mm -hmm. there's no such thing as an arranger scale, there is an orchestration scale, and there's oh. two different things. Over the years you establish a price for yourself, basically, and there's no, a lot of times with some, an arranger starting out, he says, well, how should I charge? I said, well, you know what you do? Go to your local, if you're in you know, New York, go to local 802, get to what the orchestrator scale is. 
figure out at scale what it is. So at least when you bargain with somebody, you have some idea. You, you don't just pu don't pull a number out of the hat. It's a budgetary thing. Mm -hmm. You decide, oh, it's not worth it. I don't want to do it. Or you say, well, it's a very important scene. It's a wonderful orchestra, a wonderful band, and it's, it's, there's right. other far-reaching things. So I mean, I really feel that goes on to this day. You know, like when I do stuff, for, I've done stuff for Liza Minnelli over the years. So of course, you know, that's you're talking a whole other thing. Then when I did stuff for Mel Lewis for the Vanguard Orchestra, yeah. <laughs> now you know, yeah. there's a yeah. quite a difference as far. But certainly, when Mel talked to me about it, I was, sure, man, I'd love to do some stuff with the band. We didn't even talk about money. Right. You know, I mean, that's now you're talking about something else. Now. Yeah, you're talking about. Thinking you of know. the people in that band playing your music. Yeah, for I mean, one come thing. on, there's no, there's no comparison. So for somebody to refuse that on the basis of he's not, well, he's not paying me my, you know, X amount, it's the guy's in the wrong business. Yeah. Is it easier for you to write when you have less choices to make instrumentation-wise, or when you have this huge possibility of a big band and an orchestra? It's a very good question. Um, it. It's it really it's variable. It all depends. Some pieces fall into place a little easier. I, I, it's hard. For, sometimes I've had more trouble figuring out what to do with a band than I do with a full orchestra, mm -hmm. and or vice versa. It, it, it's there's no set thing for me on it. And I'm generally working on two or three pieces at one time. You know, so like if I run into a roadblock on one, I stop, start working on this, and sometimes something will. Something will ring a bell working on this piece for this piece. Mm -hmm. You know, and I get nervous when only working on one piece at a time. Oh, really? Now we call that multitasking. Business as usual for those busiest writers and arrangers. On the West Coast, no one was busier than Bill Holman. Bill wrote charts for Basie, Kenton, Buddy Rich, and Maynard Ferguson contributed music to the talk shows of Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, Dick Cavett, and The Tonight Show, and somehow found time to lead and arrange music for his own band, the Bill Holman Big Band. He seemed to intuitively know that charts for singers required a musical device that musicians often forget is available to them. I want to ask about the first time you... Um had a quite a list of singers here that you've arranged for also. And when was your first experience doing a chart for a singer? It must have been uh, around the middle 50s uh, for Peggy Lee. Uh, I believe in starting at the top. <laughs> and I, was, I, you know, so. I was really scared because I had, had kind of a crush on her since 1942. Oh, that's, that's nice. <laughs> But she's, you know, she's a great singer, and so uh, <clears throat> I really took it easy writing the charts. I didn't put a whole lot of in there, you know, I was afraid to get in her way. And, mm -hmm. and she told me later, after a couple of years, she says, well, the thing I like, really like about your charts is that all the stuff you leave out. <laughs> so I guessed right on that one. There's, yeah, but, uh, there's a lesson there. Yeah. Rests are good. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do much writing for the, um, the studios as far as uh, film music and... Uh, I did some in the 50s when they were using uh, a lot of jazz scores, mm -hmm. and especially TV shows. And I worked with uh, Leith Stevens on a couple of things. He was a uh, very good Hollywood uh, picture film composer. Uh, 
but I've never gone into actually composing for movies. I, I did a couple of grade C movies <laughs> in the 50s. Grade C, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you ever see them? Yes. Yeah. One of them made TV, and uh, it comes out occasionally. It's re <laughs> rerun. And, Can you uh, tell me what it is? It's called Swamp. It was called Swamp Women. <laughs> Swamp Women. <laughs> yeah. With score by Bill Holman. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible music. Time for a few vocabulary words. We've already used the term chart, jazz slang for an arrangement, as in, did you finish that chart? The score created for the chart is that heavy-duty, over-large paper where all the parts are written. The copyist, who writes out the individual parts from that score, and the copyist may or may not be the composer or arranger often the last step in this whole process. The orchestrator, a behind-the-scenes cat who is expert at taking piano scores or small group charts, expands them to larger ensembles, perfectly matching instruments to musical themes. Ever hear of Erwin Costell or Sid Raymond? Neither had I until reading the fine print on the original soundtrack to West Side Story. They're the orchestrators who made Bernstein's music come alive. I would have to check for sure, but I think every episode of our Jazz Backstory podcast has mentioned Count Basie in some context. Composing or arranging for Basie was a goal for every jazz writer, and Frank Foster not only played tenor sax for the Count, but excelled at arranging charts that filled every Basie requirement. His chart, Shiny Stockings, is a must-play for any jazz ensemble. Frank describes what pleased and displeased the Count. How about the first time you brought an arrangement to Basie? <laughs> the first arrangement I brought to the Basie band was one I brought from Korea with me that I had played with the band in Korea. It was, uh, it was an original cha-cha-cha. No kidding. <laughs> and uh, the band needed uh, a couple of Latin-flavored songs for the dancers that they, that they were playing. And they only had one mambo. So, no, this was a mambo, not a cha-cha-cha. You wrote a mambo. This, yeah, this okay. was an original sort of thing based on a mambo groove. And we, it was very simple. And I brought it into the band and we played it. And basically encouraged me to continue writing. And uh, the results of that encouragement were blues backstage and blues in horse flat and eventually shiny stockings. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not all <laughs> peaches and cream or roses, as it were. Uh, if you could count the arrangements that were rejected uh, as stacked up against those that were accepted, 
the stacks would pretty be pretty even. No kidding. Right. So you take it into a rehearsal, and he did it take him a long time to decide? No, never took him a long time. If the arrangement played down the first time, and nobody had to decipher it as though it were hieroglyphics, and it swung, it was in. Generally, if, if it took too long and people had to labor over phrases and how does this go and what does this mean and, and if it sounded like uh, uh -huh. too, much, too much dissonance or too many pregnant 19s, as Basie <laughs> used to say. Oh, did he say that? Yeah, he said, son, when you write an arrangement, don't put too many pregnant 19s in there. <laughs> so I knew what he meant by pregnant 19s. <laughs> and uh, if it was too busy, too overloaded, it all, every time it got rejected, which brings me to the story of Shiny Stockings. Uh, we were playing a place in Philadelphia called Pep's Bar, and we just arrived in town that morning, and we had to rehearse that day because it was customary to rehearse uh, on the opening day of, of each nightclub engagement. But we had arrived late and checked in late, at the hotel, a long trip from somewhere. Everybody is tired, uh, ill-tempered, hungry, and no one felt like rehearsing. You know, we'd rather have uh, done anything than rehearse. But we had to rehearse that day, and I brought Shiny Stockings in. And the first rehearsal of Shiny Stockings, it just sounded like a 43-card pilot on a New York Thruway. <laughs> everybody ran into everybody. I said, oh my God, he'll never play this song. And I put so much into it. Well, Mr. Basie must have heard something because with that horrible rehearsal, he must have understood how tired everyone was and, and how unwilling we were to rehearse. And, and that, that was the result of our attitudes. He must have heard something because we played it and played it and played it, and I guess you could say the rest is history. I guess so. <laughs> but at many other songs that sounded like that in rehearsal never got played. Yeah. And we had a, an expression. Uh, if we were rehearsing something and uh, it wasn't going well, either because it was too busy or the harmonies weren't, right or it sounded amateurish we had an expression pasadena which meant pass it in <laughs> and after we worked on the chart for about 10 or 15 minutes marshall royal who was the straw boss he'd say pasadena <laughs> and i guess this was sort of code wow. terminology uh -huh. so that the arranger <laughs> the arranger was somebody outside the band oh he wouldn't, he wouldn't know what we were talking about, but you'd see all this music <laughs> converging on one spot, which means it was being but, passed but, in. But you knew. Do you think you had an advantage writing for the band you were playing in? Yes, definitely. The, the uh, arrangers who were in the band, namely Thad Jones, Frank West, myself, Ernie Wilkins while he was still there, and... Uh, uh, and Eric, the late Eric Dixon definitely had an advantage being in the band. We knew the personalities we were surrounded by, and uh, 
we uh, knew each other's strong points. We knew how to write for each other's strong points mm -hmm. and to de-emphasize weak points of which there were very few. I mean, everybody in that band was a section person, if not a great soloist. Everybody in there was a seasoned section player. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just had a great advantage over outside arrangers. Some of the successful writers for the band were Benny Carter and uh, Quincy Jones and Billy Byers. Now, those were three uh, masters all of whom contributed some very significant uh, music uh -huh. to the band. Others weren't so fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you could, it, it was partly my left-handed compliment to say I was rejected by Count Basie. Yeah, At well, least they yeah. read it once. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, Basie, he would always make it up because he, Years after, uh, this must have been in the early 60s, now Shiny Stockings was introduced to the book in 1955. Um, Basie pulled me over in the corner and he said, Kid, you know, you wrote that Shiny Stockings? I said, yeah. He said, you really put one down that time, boy. <laughs> that was five years later. Huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> he was a man of few words most of the time. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> But every word meant something. Yeah, just like his playing, right? Right, exactly, like his playing. He used to say, uh, it's best to know what to leave out than to put too much in. And then he'd say, he'd have a saying like, it's the little things that mean so much. And what he meant by that was very few notes, but making a definite statement. Uh -huh. rather than just taking the ink pen and throwing it at the paper and splattering ink all over and trying to get somebody to play that. Do yourself a favor and seek out Shiny Stockings, played by the Count Basie Orchestra. It defines big band swing and has the most awesome shout chorus. There's a new vocabulary word. Shout chorus, all the instruments playing the same rhythm thickly harmonized, and swinging like crazy. Our next episode will feature anecdotes from more jazz writers, including Oliver Nelson Jr., Maria Schneider, and Dave Ravello. We'll go out on a chart of mine, one that started with a two-chord rhythmic figure at the piano. It went something like this. And to borrow from Stefan Harris, some 20 hours later, it had become something worth splattering ink for. It's entitled Baia, here played by the SUNY Fredonia Alumni Jazz Ensemble.